Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of Forgotten History is brought to you by Magellan TV a new kind of streaming service that aims to bring you the best documentaries from around the world. We at The History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and The History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join The History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with The History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. On today's episode, the History Guy tells several stories about aerial hijinks. First, the story of Korean air veteran Tommy Fitzpatrick, whose good spirits and impeccable skill made him a legend in his own time. Then, the History Guy will talk about Howard Buddy Foote, who decided to steal an $18 million plane just for a chance to realize his dream. Finally, the History Guy will tell the story of Wrong Way Corrigan, who took off from New York with a flight plan to return to Los Angeles, but landed instead in Dublin, Ireland. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. Thomas Fitzpatrick lived in Karlstadt, New Jersey, but on the night of September 29, 1956, he was visiting the Washington Heights neighborhood of Manhattan, where he had used to live. He'd come back to his old stomping grounds to enjoy a bachelor party for one of his friends, and after that was over, had decided to have a few quiet drinks at a local bar near where he used to live, called Joe's at 191st and St. Nicholas Avenue, for old time's sake. The 26-year-old was described as a husky, six-foot-tall blonde, and his friends called him Tommy Fitz. A childhood acquaintance recalled that he had a crazy side and ran with a wild bunch. He had enlisted in the New York State Guard at the age of 13 by lying about his age, and then enlisted with the Marine Corps at the age of 15. When his age was discovered, he secured his parents' consent and was able to stay. Spent two years in China with the Corps, where, among other things, he'd learned to fly a reconnaissance plane. He was honorably discharged from the Marines in 1947, but then enlisted with the Army in 1949. At just 20 years of age, he was already a veteran of the United States Marines, the United States Army, and the New York State Guard. Stationed in Japan, he was scheduled to return home when what at the time was called the Korean Emergency occurred in June of 1950. He was among the first Americans to be sent to the conflict. A corporal with the 8051st Quartermaster Battalion, on July 22, 1950, he was in charge of a detachment bringing fuel to the front when a shell landed near a foxhole where he had taken shelter. He woke up in a hospital in Tokyo, having suffered a severe concussion and several shrapnel wounds. He was the first person from New York City to be wounded in the Korean conflict and was awarded the Purple Heart. As a silver lining because of his wound, he was granted leave that allowed him to make it home for his mother's birthday in August. She told the New York Daily News it was the nicest she ever had. After recovering from his wounds, he became a boxer and was an Army heavyweight boxing champion. He served as a military policeman patrolling Times Square before being discharged in 1951. 
After being discharged from the Army, he became a pipe fitter with local number 638 of New York and a part-time airplane mechanic at the Curtis Wright factory in Caldwell, New Jersey. He became a licensed pilot, studied at the Teterboro School of Aeronautics at Teterboro Airport in New Jersey. There is some controversy as to exactly what happened early morning of September 30th. Tommy Fitz claimed that upon returning home, he simply just had an urge to fly. He took an airplane from the Teterboro School of Aeronautics, a red and cream Cessna 120, a small one-engine two-seat aircraft, that he claimed to have permission to fly, and at approximately 3 a.m., made what the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette described as a breathlessly perfect landing on St. Nicholas Avenue, taxing to the same bar where he had previously been drinking in time to have one last drink before the 3 a.m. last call. He told police that he had told the part owner of the plane, David Van Dyke Jr., that he wanted to borrow the plane, that he would settle up the cost in the morning, and had gone flying. But while over Manhattan, he developed engine trouble, was forced to land. His landing was actually quite remarkable. A spokesman for the New York City Police Department Aviation Department described it as a 100,000 to 1 shot and almost impossible. St. Nicholas Avenue was a busy thoroughfare, but it was nearly deserted in the early morning hour when Tommy Fitz skillfully nested his plane between five and six story apartment buildings. A friend drove Fitzpatrick back to Teterboro to recover his car, and he told the owner what had happened to the plane. The owner, however, disputed Fitzpatrick's assertion that he had permission to take the plane, and when he returned to where the plane was still parked, police arrested him for the charge of suspected grand larceny. The press largely took a comic view of the stunt, but the police less so, as the Democrat and Chronicle of Rochester, New Jersey noted dryly, the city frowns on the practice of landing aircraft on its congested streets. And the spokesman for the Police Aviation Bureau said, a great many terrible things could have happened. In fact, his story fell apart rather quickly as police could find no evidence of the engine failure that supposedly forced him to land. Instead, the police asserted that he probably did it as the result of a bet, a deduction that the New York Daily News explained as considering that the same gin mill was involved in both the takeoff and the landing. In fact, years later, Tommy Fitz admitted that it came as a result of a bet. A friend had bet him that he could not get from New Jersey to Washington Heights in 15 minutes. Reportedly, he had intended to land at the local high school's football field, but as it wasn't lighted at night, he decided to use St. Nicholas Avenue instead. Fitzpatrick was originally held on a $5,000 bond for suspicion of grand larceny, violating city code, and flying in an outdated Civil Aviation Administration medical certificate, as he had not had a physical in two years. Magistrate Edward J. Chapman explained the surprisingly high bail as a deterrent to other foolish young men who get drunk and fly a plane. The plane had to be dismantled, or at least have the wings removed, to return it to New Jersey. But it appears he smoothed things over with the airplane's owners and the Teterboro School of Aeronautics because they refused to press the charge of grand larceny, and in the end he only paid a $100 fine, essentially for illegal parking, and had his pilot's license suspended. And his flight certainly made a good story. Maybe too good, because reportedly the night of October 3rd, 1958, Fitzpatrick was at another bar in the Washington Heights area when he told the story to a man from Connecticut who didn't believe him. At approximately 1 a.m. on the 4th, 30-year-old New York City bus driver Harvey Rofe was in his bus at 191st in Amsterdam when he heard what sounded like a large fan. A Cessna 120 airplane hit the street next to him, bounced up about 20 feet, and then landed, taxing down the street. Rofe recalled that first he hit the deck for fear he might get hit by flying glass, and then was thinking, what the hell could you ever say if they pulled you into a safety hearing for having a collision 
with an airplane. Rofe ran down the street, but by the time he got to the plane, the pilot was gone. Another motorist, 30-year-old carpenter John Johnson, apparently had to slam on his brakes to avoid being hit as the plane literally bounced over the top of his car. He ran down the street to see a six-foot-tall, 200-pound man in a gray suit running away from the airplane. It didn't take police long to connect that description to the stunt that Tommy Fitzpatrick had played just two years earlier. Fitzpatrick at first denied having piloted the plane, but finally admitted to police that the man from Connecticut had driven him to Teterboro Airport, where he determined to prove his exploits to the skeptic. It was another nearly miraculous landing. One witness recalled to the New York Times in 2013 that, I thought maybe they had trucked it in as a practical joke, because there was no way a man had landed in that narrow street. For his second offense, Judge John A. Mullins gave a stiffer sentence, six months in jail for carrying stolen goods across a state line telling Fitzpatrick, had you been properly jolted in 1956, it is possible this would not have occurred a second time, and you're not going to make an airstrip out of a New York City street. Fitzpatrick responded, it's the lousy drink. In 1959, he pled guilty to a second charge of flying while intoxicated on a suspended license. He had never renewed it after the 1956 suspension. and was again sentenced to six months in jail, although the sentences were served concurrently. Thomas Fitzpatrick, whom the New York Daily News described as a local wrong-way Corrigan who found air landing strips where the Port Authority had never built any, died in September of 2009 of cancer at the age of 79. According to his obituary, he had been married to his wife Helen for 51 years, was survived by Helen, three sons, his brother and sister, and many nieces and nephews. Next, the History Guy tells the story of Howard Buddy Foote, and his dream to fly the A-4 Skyhawk. Piloting a high-performance military jet aircraft is the goal of many young men and women, but it is a difficult dream to attain. In 1986, a talented young Marine made an impulsive choice after receiving some bad news. That time that a Marine ground crewman stole an $18 million Marine Corps jet fighter deserves to be remembered. A May 18, 1984 article in the Los Angeles Times describes what might be called a young man whose interest in flight was typical. Howard Buddy Foote developed an interest in aviation after building model airplanes at age 12 and became determined to be a pilot after taking his first ride at a commercial airliner at age 14. The young man, however, then just 18, took that interest higher and farther than most. He earned his pilot's license at age 16 joined a soaring club in Long Beach and proceeded to break the California Junior Altitude record in an unpowered glider, flying at 33,140 feet. High altitude soaring is not a simple skill. Story explained that the best conditions for high altitude soaring require passing through severe ground level weather. The altitudes at which the teenager was flying were deadly cold, around minus 72 degrees Fahrenheit, and required oxygen equipment or the pilot would pass out within minutes. But he wasn't doing this on his own. His efforts were supported by a group of British and American aeronautical engineers who were supporting his attempt to break the world's record for high-altitude flying in an unpowered glider. Among his supporters was Marine Brigadier General Art Bloomer, who was commanding officer of the nearby Marine Air Station El Toro near Irvine, California. Already an accomplished pilot and well-known within the gliding community, after graduating high school, Foote chose to enlist in the Marine Corps in 1986. He became an A-4 aviation mechanic at El Toro. His goal was to obtain a commission through the Corps Enlisted Commissioning Program, a program where an enlisted Marine earns a four-year degree and then can be commissioned as an officer, a requirement to become a pilot. 
A friend from high school noted that Foote had talked about his glider flying in a class presentation and said that his goal was to fly the Douglas A4M Skyhawk. The Skyhawk is a delta-winged, single-turbojet engine, subsonic, carrier-capable attack aircraft. Entering service in 1956, the A-4 served with the United States in the Vietnam War, with the Israeli Air Force in the Yom Kippur War, and with the Argentine Air Force in the Falklands War. Designed to be lightweight, the A-4 served with both the Navy and Marines, but also with a number of foreign navies, where its small size allowed it to be operated off of smaller aircraft carriers. The plane was also used by the Navy Flight Demonstration Team, the Blue Angels. The Agile Fighter was used by the Navy as the primary adversary aircraft at the Navy Fighter Weapons School known as Top Gun. The plane served as a training surrogate for the MiG-17 and its superb low-speed handling made it an excellent aircraft for training aviators in air combat maneuvering. While the Navy continued to use the A-4 in flight training, the Marines had passed on the Navy's frontline replacement, the LTV A-7 Corsair II. And yes, Corsair means pirate. Thus, at the time he entered the service, the Marines were still operating the A-4 in their attack squadrons with the primary mission of air support for ground units. According to his high school buddy, Foote could have flown with any branch, but chose the Marines because he wanted to fly the A-4. But in February 1986, Foote's dreams were ruined. Foote had continued flying high-altitude gliders in his off-duty time, still seeking to break the world altitude record. While flying at 42,500 feet, Foote suffered an aerial embolism, a blockage in the bloodstream caused by lack of oxygen. It's an affliction similar to the bends suffered by divers. It's caused when the human body fails to adapt to a quick change in pressure. Foote was able to recover and land the glider, but was then informed by a flight surgeon that suffering the embolism meant that Foote would be unable to fly for the Marines. Foote and his family disagreed with General Bloomer over the event. Foote's father Bud contended in a 1988 interview in the Los Angeles Times that it was the general who got Buddy's head all turned around and that Foote had flown too high at the general's urging. He said that if the general had left Buddy alone, everything would have turned out fine. Reportedly, General Bloomer had tried to get the altitude record flight to be a Marine Corps sanctioned event, but he was not able to get approval. Had he succeeded, the Corps would likely have provided a pressure suit, which would have made the attempt much safer. Bloomer insisted that he tried to discourage Foote from going about 30,000 feet without the pressure suit. Foote said that he felt that the general had given him a job to do. My job was to break glider records. Foote was upset that none of the people in command who had encouraged him in his high-altitude glider record attempts would come forward and get me a medical waiver so I could fly jets. The 20-year-old Marine reportedly became extremely depressed over what he saw as the loss of his dream. He'd signed up for the Marines to become a pilot, not a line officer. In the early morning hours of July 4th, he made an interesting decision. He decided that he was going to steal an $18 million Marine jet fighter. In the early morning hours, Foote donned a flight suit and drove a yellow truck of the type used to deliver pilots up to an A-4M of Marine Attack Squadron VMA-214, the Black Sheep. A sentry noticed him, but assumed that a mechanic was performing nighttime maintenance work on the aircraft, something a Marine spokesman later described as not uncommon. But maintenance was not the young man's plan. He told the LA Times, I had worked my entire life for this flight. There was nothing else. He fired up the plane, which was unarmed, and closed the canopy, taxied over a nearby runway, which was unlit, pushed the throttle forward, and took off. Lance Corporal Brenda Miller, the sentry in charge of the area, was heading for an authorized break when she heard the plane's engine as it taxied for the runway. That's what clued me that there was something wrong, she would later say in a hearing. No plane should have been on the runway, which was closed. 
Retired Marine Corps Major Richard Harden recalled that night, saying it was about midnight when he heard an A-4 depart the field. He said, I was wondering who had the huevos to do a closed field departure. Must have been somebody really important, I surmised, from my base housing quarters. Lance Corporal Miller chased the plane down the runway, but was unable to get the pilot's attention. She had a sidearm, but chose not to draw it, saying she did not have an accurate shot. It seems extraordinary that Foote could manage to take off in an unfamiliar, high-tech fighter aircraft from a darkened runway, despite his experience piloting gliders. But as a mechanic, he was familiar with the plane. Moreover, he had spent significant time training on an A-4 simulator, something Harden speculated he'd been able to wrangle because he was a celebrity of sorts among the local gliding community. The rumor, Harden noted, was that Foote had had more time on the simulator than active duty aviators. The runway was closed, and there were no air traffic controllers on duty, so Foote's flight was not tracked. But news reports at the time said that he spent about 45 minutes over the ocean executing high-speed maneuvers. An aviation maintenance officer later testified that one of the gauges indicated that the plane had undergone considerable gravitational pressure. A Marine spokesman later simply said, he had some fun up there. He was not being tracked, and the Marines decided not to send a plane up to chase him, but he still chose to return to El Toro. He flew over the field five times, which one of the sentries interpreted as a request to turn on the runaway light so he could safely land. The lights were turned on, and he landed the plane. He was immediately arrested by armed military police. The aviation maintenance officer had just arrived and asked him if he had had a good flight. He responded that he thought we had a generator problem with the engine. Foote was not found to be under the influence of drugs or alcohol, and upon inspection, the aircraft was found to be undamaged. El Toro had no prison facility, so Foote was confined at the brig at Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton near San Diego. The charges were serious. He was charged with misappropriating the truck and the plane, damaging the aircraft, disobeying regulations, flying without proper training or approval, and recklessly disregarding the plane's mechanical condition. At the time of his theft, the plane's aileron rigging was out of alignment, and the nose steering mechanism was not working properly, rendering the plane, from a mechanical standpoint, not a flyable airplane. But the most significant charge was hazarding a vessel. While the other charges might render lengthy prison sentences, the hazarding a vessel charge, intended to prevent the safety risk of mishandling naval ships, could result in the death penalty. Foote was held in the brig at Camp Pendleton for four and a half months, where Major Harden said his daring stunt made him somewhat of a cult hero among both officers and enlisted alike. His military attorney sought to have the hazarding charge, which had never before been applied to the misappropriation of an airplane, thrown out. Several officers, including General Bloomer, spoke on his behalf. Bloomer later said, Buddy was a sterling Marine with an unblemished record who had done a lot of things that people a lot older could only dream about doing. I only regret that he screwed up a good career. After 122 days in the brig, a time in which the commanding officer testified he maintained a good and positive attitude, all charges were dropped. Foote was required to write a letter of apology, was given a less than honorable discharge. He said that he would like to have paid the Marines back for the problems that it created, but understood that it would be difficult for the Corps to take him back. Brigadier General D.E.P. Miller, who had replaced Bloomer in command at Del Toro, said that his lack of judgment and violation of trust make it impossible to keep him in the Marine Corps. In a written statement, Miller said, This was a very unusual case, in which a Marine with a tremendous amount of skill and great potential did a very stupid thing which could have resulted in a tragic loss of life. The military had likely taken into account not only that several officers had spoken on his behalf, but his mental state, due to being told that he would no longer qualify for flight school, and also his otherwise spotless record and good behavior while in custody. 
His military attorney told the LA Times that Foote's unauthorized flight should be treated for what it was, a once-in-a-lifetime flight from reality, not the beginning, of criminal conduct. Surprisingly, Buddy Foote was not the only ground crewman who would steal an aircraft in history. Notably, in 2018, a Horizon Air ground service agent stole one of the airline's Bombardier Q400 aircraft from Seattle's SeaTac Airport. He flew through several aeronautical maneuvers for which the plane was clearly not designed before crashing the plane. In May of 1969, a 23-year-old Air Force crew chief who had been passed over for a promotion stole a C-130 cargo plane from a base in England, crashing it into the English Channel. Luckily, Buddy Foote's joyride ended up better than those two examples did. After his discharge from the Marines, he attended Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Florida and eventually qualified to fly more than 20 types of aircraft, including obtaining a special waiver that allowed him to fly a Russian-made jet fighter aircraft as a hobby. He was still intent on flying the A-4 and attempted to enlist in both the Israeli Air Force and the Honduran Air Force so that he could fly the plane, but neither one of those worked out. In 1991, he was back in the LA Times, this time as a test pilot for a new experimental aircraft that was powered with microwaves. And in 1992, he was in the news again, this time trying to break more aeronautical records in another experimental aircraft. By 2001, the Palm Springs Desert Sun reported that he had shifted his energies to developing technology for something called space power, which is a technology that would have satellites around the Earth collecting solar power from the sun and beaming it back to the Earth using either lasers or microwaves. And in, as of 2009, he still had a company that was building that technology. He had also started racing a car at a local racetrack in California where he had earned the nickname Lead Foot. He has at least two patents for experimental aircraft and engines and worked with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and all around seems to have overcome the bad decision that he made when he was a young man at the age of 20. In 1986, he told the LA Times, I just wanted to fly it one time. I didn't sign up to become a line officer. I joined up to fly. But I think I'm going to become a lot more productive now that I've left the service. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. My favorite part of this story is that the lead-up is interesting, but, like, not wildly remarkable, until suddenly he chose to land a plane on a New York City street. <laughs> what drove Fitz, uh, Tommy Fitzpatrick here, what what drove him to his daring feats? Honestly, I think with him, first of all, alcohol was involved in both of these, so, I mean, that's part of it. And we all have that friend that's just a little bit crazy, and I think he was just a little bit crazier than that friend. Uh, it, it, he had the skills, obviously. I mean, what he did was not actually simple to do. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, this is someone who uh, probably, you know, could have been, you know, a, a, a very skilled pilot. And, and that just wasn't, you know, the career path he ended up picking it on. And so he could fly those points quite well. Maybe his war experience uh, left him a little bit more inured to danger. Uh, but uh, maybe he's just he's just that friend that's just a little bit crazy. I mean, clearly not too crazy because he did it. He pulled it off. But uh, but uh, one of the, you know one of those friends who will do something that he probably knows at the time he shouldn't be doing. So I think that the phrase today is "hold my beer." I think he's 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 the <laughs> hold my beer friend. Is is is, is who he was. Yeah. It had to be because I, I mean some some pieces of this must have been in his personality always. Yes. I can't imagine that he just suddenly turned up and was like, oh, well now I'm going to land planes in streets. <laughs> 
but it, it is when you when you tell the story you do a good job of being like oh well he you know he's living his life he's doing this he's doing that and then suddenly he's like well then you just happen to land a Spire. land the plane right outside the bar and then he did it again <laughs> because someone insisted it could have been him him who did it yeah and it, which is a which is a shocking yeah. and yet well I mean the first time it was a bet that I could get back to the city faster and then second so I mean he you know he would get in a bar he would get a conversation with someone and he set his mind to it and he would just do it so uh, yeah he's I mean it's really kind of a, a comic story I mean there's no other there's no other but he's one of those friends that you would one of those things you would laugh about later but you might not laugh at the time and and uh, even the officials at the same time that they're like well this is actually very serious you can also hear them kind of in the background going, that was crazy. Uh, and yeah, I, I, you know, I, I can't tell you fully what motivated him. Uh, he and I'm sure he was that kind of guy, uh, but there didn't seem to be, at least in any of the newspaper articles, any other stories in Steel Submarine or anything like that. I mean, these are you know, no. He, although he did have that problem with uh, when he flew that plane, and that they were the the owner was like, well, I don't, I didn't give you really the give permission, permission that you seem to yeah. think you had. Well, and you know, and he might have. I mean, if they had a good deal with the owner, and and you know, the owner might not have cared if he had gone and done something illegal, uh, you know. So uh, uh, yeah, so I'm sure even if he had a deal with the owner, that says you do repairs here if you want to take a plane out, you know, don't worry about it. I'm sure that didn't include yeah. go fly the plane drunk. I mean, that's probably well, and also. While while you might be able to land the plane in uh, you know a tight New York street, uh, clearly it was a completely different thing trying to get, get it, it out. back out. Yes, yes. <laughs> Take the plane and leave it in the middle of New York City on a city street. You know, with the police impounding it. That's a different story altogether. So yeah, even if the friend did have a deal with him, the friend obviously was you know not going to want to take responsibility for for what had happened there. Uh, so yeah. yeah, I don't know that I would have been like, oh yeah, that was really funny. But yeah, it, <laughs> I mean, so I mean, that might have been something like, yeah, sure, if you need to borrow my car, that's not a big deal, and you know, you expect you to rob a bank with it or you know something like that. Yeah. So I mean, uh, yes, I, I don't know exactly, you know, where the deal goes or whatever. But I mean, clearly, you know, nobody running the airport was going to be like, yeah, you want to take the plane and fly it, land it on the street just to prove you can. Oh sure, go ahead, you know, take the take the airplane we, from we the flight mind. school. We won't we won't miss it. Uh, he, you know, I, I think like everything else in the whole story, he was probably just taking some liberties. And uh, yeah. uh, but he seems to have been the type of guy that you know, it didn't take a whole lot uh, to kind of remove the limits and and the amazing things that he was able to do. It. I mean, for someone else, uh, that might have been yeah. you know, he might have gone dunk diving and died or something like that. I mean, there are other people that take silly risks, uh, uh, and for him, you know, uh, apparently he became a better pilot when he was. Uh, Apparently, well, he was, he was <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It is frightening because I mean, even even a trained pilot uh, trying to land on a street like that it was. It's not something that was safe. I mean, it was a dangerous. Yeah, activity. no, the pilot, the guy with the uh, uh, with the NYPD, was like that was amazing. I said, this is no how do you do yeah. this? Uh, so uh, yeah, even even trained skilled pilots were amazed at, at his ability to do that. And and uh, it's funny, one of them that you know the car sees him come behind and kind of just bounces over the car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the the second one. There's the bus drivers. Like, how am I? How am I gonna? You know, how am I gonna go bring this to to somebody that I've I've hit a plane yeah, the, or something like that? He's like, how do yeah, you do that? I just that don't even. Yes, yeah, so, I mean these were these were clearly things that surprised even even professional pilots. It really is amazing for for Tommy Fitzpatrick that he has those two really insane uh -huh. moments these stories that are like oh wow but otherwise i mean he must have done other things in his life yeah i mean they didn't show up he wasn't apparently but he, he didn't, didn't spend a lot to... of time in jail or he didn't you know no. he rob any banks or he's he, he appears to have been just kind of a normal working class guy except for those two times that he stole an airplane and flew <laughs> and landed him in a street yeah 
he wasn't a trick pilot. It wasn't like he was some guy who like no, this he is didn't what he apparently did take the life. planes, just, you know, very frequently and do dangerous things with them or anything like that. And, no. and, uh, yeah, he's it's really yeah. really interesting. So I mean, it's uh, I, and you know, I suppose there are people that you know do. I mean, everybody does silly things now and again. The, the, you know, the, the strangest part of it is just that he did it. But that, you know, he did it again. You know, he first of all, first did it on a dare and did it the second time to prove that he was the guy that took the dare. <laughs> but I mean, both yeah, times he was uh... in that same bar. He was in his neighborhood. He was, I mean, you know, he just, uh, you know, clearly he got to that point where you put all the pieces together and, and the rules kind of fell away. Uh, and, you know, thank goodness that he didn't hurt anyone and he didn't hurt himself. And it comes out being just a, a heck of a story, a ripping heart. A heck of a story. Mm-hmm. And that's. I do feel like we should we should preface because the other stories we talk about today too, uh, really really good examples of things that you should not try at home. Oh, yeah. Well, you'd have to have an airplane at home to try either of them. But yes, we're this is we're fair. certainly not trying to advocate the choices that were made here uh, by by noting that they are history that deserves to be remembered. I mean, they're they're great stories, but I mean, yeah, yeah you wouldn't want to emulate. And yeah, like it could have gone wrong. It easily could have gone wrong. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. could I mean the the streets just happened to be empty that time of night. But I mean it wasn't just it wasn't just him and the plane. It's that he easily could have killed someone else. He easily could have hit home, yeah. or easily could have uh, uh, hit a car, or caused you know a lot more damage than he did. Uh, but and you know the judge clearly, even though I'm um, just trying to be very strict with him and explain to him this isn't funny. This is this, you know you got to take this seriously. Uh, but even so, I mean, that, you know, even the official response seemed to pretty much acknowledge uh, yeah. that. Uh, well, yeah. that's the because after the second one, they sent him sentenced him to six months in jail as a a deterrent to other foolish young men who get drunk and try to fly <laughs> a plane. <laughs> and worded like that, you're like, yes, we should. Yeah, we should. We, we should, really uh, do have to uh, you know, discourage <laughs> such behavior just in case. <laughs> Well, I mean, you, you'd have to be concerned at that moment with it in the news and stuff that someone else was going to try it. Yeah. Oh, I can do yeah. that, right? That's the. Yeah, I mean, this, by the same, someone the else same, gave uh, me the idea. Yeah. So, oh, he thinks he's so cool. He can land a plane and a. So that's so. It is good to be clear. We are not condoning or endorsing that in yeah. any way. Anybody who's listening to this that makes that choice, it's on you. It's not on us. We're telling you, bad idea. Bad idea. Don't do it. The next story that you talked about with with Buddy Foot is has a very different motive with a somewhat similar uh, idea behind yeah. it <laughs> with it's very understandable. This was a guy who clearly had always wanted to fly planes mm-hmm. and who had constantly been working toward that goal. And so I, I can't imagine what I might do if after all of that training, all of that work, uh, one little thing messes up. Mm-hmm. It seems like one little thing It was fairly mm-hmm. serious having the, the, embolism that's yeah uh, but, but i mean he probably would have been fine to be a pilot yeah you know, the, the military is just very strict he had his dream his dream taken away so i mean it's similar yeah. in that it was it clearly an impulsive moment it was uh, uh but it's you know he wasn't drunk he was clearly he planned it you know he, he clearly made his choice involved with it uh but it, i mean they talk about it in fact when they when the military disciplined him they really saw that as this is just one bad decision that, that you can understand why he felt so compelled in that decision yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, it happens. People get their dreams set on something, and uh, and then you can't do it. Then you know you can see how someone might you know want to jump in. He said, "I just want to fly at one time." I can understand that. I can sympathize. Uh, but again, yeah. we're not suggesting anybody steal an aircraft from the Marines. No. no. Well, and it was also, I mean, it was impulsive and audacious. It was, yeah. <laughs> to just. And and I mean he knew it, but I, as a twenty-two year old, I can also see where he, yeah. uh, or I guess he was twenty. Was, I think he was, was twenty. Yeah. 
yeah, to decide to just be like, well, I'm uh, I'm going to take my chance. Yeah, I'm a bit on the other hand, we have 20 year olds and more that are having to make all sorts of life yeah. and death decisions. So I mean, so it's hard to write it off in youth. But but I mean, clearly that was part of when he, I mean, because he was really let off. Uh, you know, essentially yeah. he said you can't be in the Marines anymore. It's, it's essentially all they did to him, uh, even though they could have you know done a lot more severe penalty. And part of that was accepting that his youth was part of his decision making. He was impulsive and he felt that he had been betrayed and, and he thought he was doing all this stuff in order to exactly in order to be a Skahaf pilot. And then it turns out that that's what kept him from doing it. You can see a lot of things adding up. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know if yeah. he was depressed. I don't know if there are other life things affecting him. It was clearly, uh, you know, a uh, an impulsive decision that impacted him for the rest of his life. And and he kind of admitted afterwards. He says, I, you know, it turns out maybe I didn't belong in the Marine Corps. Maybe I'm going to do better someplace else. You have to imagine that uh, the Marine Corps is not really a fan of someone who's going to uh, disobey orders and break all those rules. As I mean, to some extent, you know, you want initiative in your mm-hmm. in your soldiers, but you also... <laughs> I mean, it's clear that there was an extent. I mean, even superior officers, senior officers, yeah. uh, that, that kind of admired it in some ways. So I think there's probably that if you're in the military, I, 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 I did serve. But I think there's probably some chafing against rules. I think there was probably some acceptance that this idea that he couldn't fly, even though he was a great pilot, uh, was probably unfair. Uh, and and uh, I think the Marine Corps does tend to want to reward people who take initiative to do things. And I think some of that kind of added together. Yeah. So, so some of it bucked the system and some of it, you know, that he, you know, he didn't take no for an answer. I mean, that was the attitude, the gung-ho attitude that got the Marines through the, the Pacific War. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting because they say in several different places that he was essentially kind of a folk hero, uh, even with fellow Marines, even though he'd done something that would be pretty extreme in terms of violating discipline for the Marine Corps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's... It's just I can really see why he chose to do it. And I, it ends up impacting him so, I mean, for the rest of his whole life. And he clearly um, seems to have been something specifically about the A4. Yeah. Because he, he talked about um, trying to, or you talked about him trying to join uh, several other. Or he could have. He could have been in the Air Force. He could have yeah. been in the Navy. He chose to be a Marine because yeah. he didn't the A4, yeah. And it's, yeah. A, I mean, it's an interesting airplane. I took some guff in the comments because if you listen to the video several times, I mentioned I call it a fighter when it was an attack aircraft. Uh, even though I think I make it clear in the episode that it was an attack aircraft concerned with attack squadrons. But, I mean, it was a very nimble aircraft. Uh, and I think part of that might have been it was one of the aircraft that the Blue Angels flew. And those are usually iconic aircraft. And a lot of young men get their passion for naval aviation from watching that flying team. Uh, and so you can see why someone focuses on a specific aircraft. Uh, and that aircraft was apparently, I mean, like a Corvette, it was very, very fun to fly. It was a very, very maneuverable craft for very specific reasons. And so that was, you know, the sort of flying they wanted to do. But I mean, a lot of it, you could go into the military, you get all the way through flight school and find out that, you know, you wanted to fly a fighter and they're going to put you flying transports. Uh, and I mean, that, yeah. that happens to, you know, uh, you know, there's just only so many slots doing what you want to do. But he apparently had become fixated on that aircraft. And he had, uh, assuming he was going to be a pilot in that aircraft, have gotten significant time in a uh, simulator so that he was very familiar with the aircraft. Uh, and uh, so he, he just decided he didn't want to accept not, you know, not ever flying it. Yeah, I think he I think he knew that he wasn't going to it wasn't going to end. Yeah, yeah. Well I think he did. Yeah. Right? But... Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, you'd have to ask him because he's still around. But it kind of sounds like he didn't really want to be in the Marines if he was going to be on an airplane. He didn't want to go be, a, a you know, a, 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 a Marine infantry officer or anything line officer. Uh, and so maybe he said, you know, I'm leaving the Marine Corps anyway. What, what's the worst it going to do to me? And and at least at least I'll fly the at plane. At least I'll fly yeah, the plane. Yeah. Uh, 
So, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, you would think, and he kind of said later, you would think that he regretted this this impulsive decision. But I, I, honestly, it's a little like Tommy Fitz and Doug Corrigan. You're not really sure if he sits here and saying that he regrets it. <laughs> and uh, so I'm sure he had I'm sure he had a really good time when he flew it. Well, and it does seem like if there's anyone who deserved to have a little bit of time with uh, it, which is, I think, I mean, I think why he ends up getting off fairly uh-huh. easy. Uh, as far as the military goes, and I, some of those, some of the rules he broke, I mean, they were serious, and they they really yeah. Could have, uh, with the original charges, at him. they want to make it like he'd stolen a battleship. You know, where, <laughs> yeah. that was an interesting. Yeah. Honestly, the legal part of that was yeah, kind of it was interesting it's, and, too. And in but, the end, uh, you know, he gets a dishonorable discharge and, and another. I mean, but you know, they I think they figure out he this is not a trouble caster. This was a good guy who had something you know something affected him profoundly enough that he made a bad decision. And it's, I, you know, I guess it's good to know that uh, even the, the military can uh, can have some flexibility there. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there are other situations where they didn't, where they were inflexible or, uh, you know, I don't know if he got special treatment or whatever because of his position, because he did seem to be like personal friend with some senior officers and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, or, or how it all added together. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's nice to know that one bad decision, especially since this one worked out not causing any real yeah. harm, uh, it's nice to know that one bad decision did not, you know, terminally in his life. And it didn't even keep him from being a Marine yeah. pilot because he wasn't going to get to be a Marine pilot anyway. And, and I mean, they clearly did. I mean, they took it seriously. That And they, they're not encouraging people to go oh, do that. Yeah. But it is it is nice to say that they that they recognized that this was something of a special case. And he wasn't just some guy. I mean, he clearly knew how to fly the plane. And even if he hadn't actually flown it specifically... Mm-hmm. Um, he, he had some, he wasn't like, you know, just me trying to get in the plane. Although to be fair, if I got in the plane, I'd be lucky to get it to turn on. So, but I mean, I think at the end of that episode, <laughs> I mentioned some other cases where someone stole yeah. it. Yeah. I think they were both, uh, one was an airline and one was a, a transport plane, but I think they were both people that, uh, were like crew chiefs that had enough experience that they probably could. And you can imagine if you're fixing that plane every day saying, you know, would it be nice to take it, you know. Uh, and in both of those, uh, you know, it was clearly a suicidal act. I mean, they 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 didn't ever yeah. expect to land a plane. So I, I I don't think the military is trying to say, oh, this was a good idea or anything. Like that. I, I think though that they were able to figure out, especially with his prior service record, with his, with the way that he acted when he was in jail, and uh, that this was this was a good guy, this was a good marine, this was a bad decision, but probably not someone that's going to go off and rob banks afterwards. And yeah. and that seems to have worked out. So I think. I think if he had behaved differently in other contexts, uh, then he might not nearly have gotten off as well as he did. I don't think they were ever going to, you know, execute him like he stole a battleship. I don't think that was ever. Gonna that would have been that. Uh, that would have been front page news yeah, kind of yeah. thing. If we were uh, killing a twenty-year-old marine that hadn't hurt anyone yet. Uh, you've done quite a few videos about planes, uh, ones like this, and uh, you've also done quite a few of the, the accidents and stuff. Is there any specific reason for that? Have you ever? Dreamed of being part, a pilot. I think maybe when I was a younger kid, I might have. But I mean, my I wear glasses. I, I didn't have the eyesight that was probably going to allow me to be a pilot from a fairly young age. So no, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not some dream to fly a plane. You can tell when you listen to these and you'll get that comment sometime that I that I didn't fly. Sometimes I don't get, you know, the lingo quite right. Uh, same thing with a lot of the nautical stuff. I didn't serve in the Navy. I mean, I'm, I'm here because I love the story, the history story. And I'm translating that to people who probably also didn't necessarily fly airplanes. And I very often will hear someone who did, you know, someone who's got real expertise in it. And they'll say, you know, you did a really good job of this. Uh, but, I mean, it might be harder uh, for that person to explain it to a layperson. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping to be the person in between the two. 
but it's it's just because I find it a compelling story. And and like a lot of kids, I grew up with you know I played with a lot of toy soldiers and stuff. I'm interested in military technology, so uh, I I like warplanes the same reason I like warships, the same reason I like tanks and stuff like that. There's just something you know you got for all that comes when you're a kid doing that. And and these are these are just good stories. So uh, I think and you've written some about planes too. Neither one of us are pilots. Yeah. Uh, I think it's I think it's really because we love the history. And that's kind of the nature of the history guy. I mean, we're not we're not here to tell one kind of story. We're here to tell all kinds of stories because we like the stories. Uh, and these three examples today uh, are, I mean, they're just great stories. You know, they're, they're so much fun to tell. So I, I wouldn't have wanted to try. I have no desire to steal a, a Marine you know, plane at all. You know, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've never been invited. Everyone saw they. T- I see him taking movie stars up in planes and stuff like that. And I just, yeah. I've not. I've not been invited to do that. Uh, I. I don't imagine that if if I was invited, that I would say no. I don't think that I could. But I'm. I don't. <laughs> I don't sit around saying, ah, oh, what I really want to be is in, in a jet airplane. It's actually a little bit scary to me. Uh, I mean, which which might make it fun, but I, I might be the guy that pukes in his mask. So I, I hope not. Yeah, I might. I might. Uh, I'm certainly not going to fly one of the things. That's. Uh... These I are these are just good. I mean, I'm old enough games. that if I really, really want to, yeah, it's true too. I've I've made it clear in the video game world that I never want to try to land an airplane on a on a carrier for heaven's sake. I've <laughs> I've managed to sink the carrier doing that, but uh, uh, but I I I'm old enough that if I wanted to, I could go and try to get a pilot's license and stuff like that. And it hasn't necessarily been my interest, even though I live right next to an airbase. So I wouldn't say it's because I want to be a pilot. I think it, I think it's because. Uh, because these are good stories, and I can understand, you know, people with dreams trying to, you know, trying to achieve yeah. those dreams, and uh, so I think that all kind of adds up. I mean, I do love these stories. These are great stories to tell. These are all, all three of these episodes are just they're just fun, interesting episodes with people that you know, uh, people that were extraordinary for you know reasons other than what you might imagine. You wouldn't necessarily call them heroic, yeah. but I mean, they still you know made amazing choices. Well, and planes are cool, yeah, planes ultimately. Are cool, so, I mean, I don't mind telling a story about jet planes. Well, I mean, we, we talk about early flight, too, because if you think about that, that yeah. idea, I mean, there's always that dream, you know, of, of, you know, people looking up at the sky and watching the birds fly by and say, could we do this? And someone figured it out, you know, and, and, uh, yeah. and that's that's a compelling story. So, I mean, we, we tell lots of stories about lots of things that I wouldn't necessarily go do myself, but I certainly can't appreciate the people <laughs> that did. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that is a fair point. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? You know, it's interesting. I was in the car with uh, your sister, uh, Willow. She's 15. Uh, for some reason, we got we were chatting about space, and we started talking about gas giants. And she was asking me questions about gas giants I couldn't necessarily answer. When I was uh, looking around at Magellan, I said, let's just, let's just kind of check that out. So I watched one called Kingdom of Saturn, uh, and it's talking about what the Cassini probe found out about Saturn. And if you watch The History Guy, you know that I, I love to talk about one, you know, a space probe. You know, those missions individually were so fascinating. Cassini was the first one that actually went to orbit Saturn. So I found out a whole lot about Saturn. And, and I would say about that, it's about an hour long. Uh, it's pretty in-depth. Uh, it's going to be high-tech, uh, uh, highly technical. Because last month, I think I was watching Fish Life, which is, which is you know, more about watching films of fish. It's not just ones in the ocean and ones in space. It's that Fish Life is more like a, a, a very casual, as, as far as documentaries go, and really more about watching, you know, really cool pictures. And this one was very much detailed. You know, I really didn't know uh, the difference between the B ring and the J ring of Saturn. It just reminds me of the breadth of things that you can do on Magellan and, and the, the depth of things that you can do on Magellan. I mean, because those two were such contrasts, and yet both of them absolutely absorbed my attention and, and my time. If you uh, if you want to learn about space, uh, there's lots of ways to do it on Magellan TV. 
I, I went a more traditional history route with the, the one that I want to talk about today. The other day I was watching The Secret File of Marco Polo. And actually what kind of what kind of interested me in it is I guess I kind of knew that some people doubted pieces of Marco's story. I guess I kind of hadn't realized how firmly some people were like, ah, no, he didn't he didn't do that trip. He didn't journey at all. He went to Constantinople and heard the stories from other people who had done it. But for several of the stories I've I've told, I've quoted Marco Polo and did some I, in, the, in the asbestos one, because he talked about how he had seen it be mined there. But I had never really realized that people were seriously arguing, ah, Marco Polo just never, never traveled that far. He, for instance, he doesn't mention the Great Wall of China, uh, which is an interesting omission for a to a modern reader. There are some pieces in there that you wonder, hmm, I wonder if it happened exactly that way. Way. He did write it with another guy, which I guess I also had not uh, fully understood. And this other guy, sometimes difficult to tell when we are switching from, you know, Marco Polo's kind of like objective, this is what I'm talking about. And then this other guy is kind of like, this is the, the exciting story that I'm telling. It's, it's a really interesting just to kind of see how they connect and what other records we have that kind of confirm that kind of stuff. I mean, those are the kinds of things that I, I mean, I like watching a history documentary to find out. So again, that it's the secret file of Marco Polo. And boy, did I learn a lot about uh, Marco Polo. And honestly, about like uh, 14th century China, yeah. too. So that was kind of... <laughs> you know, we, we wouldn't be working for the history guy. We wouldn't be doing what we do if we didn't love documentaries. And Magellan just has so many documentaries. And you learn so much every time that you go there. We, I, I legit Absolutely. love Magellan TV. We're not, we're not just pitching it because they pay us, which they do. And thank you for supporting the history guy. <laughs> uh, but we're pitching it because we really do enjoy the channel. And I, I'm going to have to go watch that one now. Absolutely. If you're looking for any kind of science, any kind of, uh, any kind of history, yeah. they've got all kinds of stuff. Natural history, true crime, and yeah, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Everything I've ever watched mm -hmm. on here has always been engaging. Yeah. It has had great footage. It's been something worth watching. I have more than 3,000 documentaries on Magellan TV. More at it all the time. Uh, and we get to look at the new ones quite a lot because that's what we're usually talking about on the YouTube channel. And yeah. uh, it's, it's if you haven't subscribed to Magellan TV, you really should. If you like the history guy, you'll love Magellan. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of the history guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash history guy, where we will always have a deal for you. Sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash history guy. Finally, the history guy is going to talk about Wrong Way Corrigan. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the history guy. Douglas Corrigan was an aviation pioneer in a time of aviation pioneers. He didn't have wealthy backers like contemporaries like Charles Lindbergh or Amelia Earhart. He couldn't command the attention that Howard Hughes could. But when Douglas Corrigan flew into history on July 17, 1938, by completing the first nonstop transatlantic solo flight from Brooklyn, New York to Dublin, Ireland, he had a unique claim to fame because he was supposed to land in California. Wrong Way Corrigan deserves to be remembered. Corrigan was born on January 22, 1907, in Galveston, Texas. His birth name was Clyde Corrigan, but he legally changed his name as an adult to Douglas. His family moved around during his childhood and ended up in Los Angeles, California. Corrigan dropped out of high school, worked in construction for a while. Reflecting on this time in life, Corrigan would later say, I never had any aims. That's why I never got anywhere. But the directionless existence ended when, at age 18, he took a $2.50 ride in a Curtis JN4D Jenny on a sightseeing tour. After that, Corrigan saw his future in the skies. He began taking lessons every Sunday at an airfield owned by B.F. Mahoney and Claude Ryan. His 
first solo flight took place on March 25, 1926. Mahoney and Ryan hired Corrigan to work at Ryan Aeronautical Company in San Diego, and he was with the group that constructed the Spirit of St. Louis, the custom-built, single-engine, single-seat, high-wing monoplane that was flown by Charles Lindbergh. Corrigan was responsible for installing the wing, an instrument panel, and gas tanks for the famous plane. Along with a colleague, he increased the plane's lift by creating a wing 10 feet longer than any previous Ryan aircraft. Corrigan met Lindbergh in 1927 and wasn't impressed. He said, Gosh, he looks like a farmer. Do you suppose he can fly? Corrigan and his co-workers celebrated when Lindbergh made history in the plane that they constructed. That event would cement in his mind that he wanted to do the same thing, complete a solo crossing of the Atlantic, except his destination would be Dublin instead of Paris in order to celebrate his Irish-American heritage. When Ryan Aeronautical moved from San Diego to St. Louis, Corrigan decided to remain behind in California, where he became a mechanic for a flight school. He loved to go up and practice dangerous stunts over and over again, so much so that the owners of the school asked him to stop. They were afraid that he was being a bad role model for the students and that he would crash their airplane. Instead of acquiescing, he simply flew his stunts farther away from the airfield so that they wouldn't see him. In 1933, Corrigan purchased a Curtis Robin for $310 and set about customizing it in order to make his dream of a transatlantic trip come true. He added additional gas tanks and a new engine, a Wright J65 with 165 horsepower. But a federal inspector, after examining Corrigan's plane, determined it was not safe for an intercontinental flight, though he was approved to fly across the United States. He continued to apply for permission to make his dream flight, and federal authorities continued to deny his application. In the meantime, Corrigan added even more gas tanks to his Curtis Robin and dubbed the little plane Sunshine, because I'd always consider my plane as a little ray of sunshine. After Amelia Earhart's plane disappeared in 1937, Corrigan feared he would never receive permission to make his flight, as the government began demanding even more safety measures for pilots. They told Corrigan he must get a license to operate a radio, though Sunshine didn't even have a radio for him to use. When authorities refused to issue a flying license for his plane, Sunshine was grounded for six months. Corrigan made a few final adjustments to the plane, approximately $900 worth, or what would be around $16,000 today, and flight inspectors looked over the changes and gave him an experimental license. They also approved a flight plan for Corrigan to travel from Los Angeles to New York and back again in 1938. It was then that Corrigan seemed to take matters into his own hands. On the first part of the flight, from Long Beach to New York, one of the gas tanks in Corrigan's plane sprung a leak and gasoline sloshed around his feet. Some historians say he completed his first leg of the trip with his head hanging out the window in order to not become sick from the fumes. By the time he landed at Roosevelt Field, Corrigan estimated there were only four gallons of fuel left in his tanks. He examined his tanks and decided to risk the flight, as repairs would have taken him at least another week to complete. Corrigan made the short flight from Roosevelt Field to Floyd Bennett Field, where everyone had their attention on the famous Howard Hughes, who was preparing to take his infamous flight around the world, and very few paid attention to what Corrigan did next. On July 17th, Corrigan filled his tanks with 320 gallons of gasoline. He brought a compass, a map of the United States, two chocolate bars, a quart of water, and two boxes of fig bars. When he began his flight, sunshine was so heavy that she traveled more than 3,000 feet down the runway before her wheels left the ground. 31-year-old Corrigan took off and disappeared into the fog, except that he was headed east as opposed to west, which his flight plan clearly indicated that he should.
He had to crouch in the airplane because it was so crammed with fuel cells, and on the way, Sunshine sprung the gas leak again. This time, all he did was use a screwdriver to punch a hole in the floor so at least it wouldn't slosh around his feet but drain out while he was flying. To compensate, he increased his speed a little bit. Corgan later said he saw a fishing boat and realized that he was going to live through the crossing and open some of his meager rations to celebrate. Then he said, I noticed some nice green hills. He landed Sunshine on July 18th at the Baldonnell Airport in Ireland. Corgan hopped out of his plane and said to the surprise Irish airport workers, Just in from New York. Where am I? I intended to fly to California. When he checked his gas tanks, he had 30 gallons left. In an interview with United Press, Corgan said, I don't feel very tired, but I sure was surprised when I found myself off the coast of Ireland. When a customs official and army officer met the pilot, he had an explanation ready. I got mixed up in the clouds and must have flown the wrong way. When he couldn't produce a passport, Irish officials called the American Embassy. Though the customs agent at first considered arresting Corrigan, he ended up letting the pilot go, saying that this type of incident, a flight arriving with no entry papers, had never happened before and he wasn't sure what the proper protocol was. The American official from the Embassy, John Clarence Cudahy, asked Corrigan to explain how he came to be so far off course. Corrigan replied that he must have misread his compass. The official replied, It was hazy when you took off, was it? Well, your story seems a little hazy, too. Now come on and tell me the real story. To which Corgan reportedly said, That's my story, but I sure am ashamed of that navigation. While in Ireland, Corgan met the Prime Minister of Ireland, Eamon de Valera, who was more amused than angry by the stunt. De Valera said, He thought since Corgan was able to come into the country without papers, he should be able to go home without them, too. And he thanked the pilot for bringing the world's attention to Ireland. Corgan made a side trip to England and met the American ambassador there as well, Joseph Kennedy. U.S. aviation officials required more than 600 words to list all the regulations Corgan broke in a telegram. In response to his unauthorized flight, American authorities suspended Corgan's license for two weeks. But it didn't matter because Sunshine wasn't flying back home. Officials booked Corgan and his plane a ticket on the steamship Manhattan. He passed his two-week suspension on the ship. Corgan received a hero's welcome when the ship pulled into New York. Mayor LaGuardia congratulated him on his successful flight. The public was enchanted with Corrigan. Not only had he defied authorities to fulfill his dreams, but he invented a story to explain it and never backed down when confronted about its truth. His brazen flight was a welcome respite from the economic depression and the drums of war already beating in international reports. In his obituary, the New York Times explained the reason for his fame. He was an impish young pilot who had boldly thumbed his nose at authority and then boldly denied it. Also, anyone looking at the plane Corrigan used to make his flight marveled that he had made it so far in one piece. The American journalist H.R. Knickerbocker wrote of Corrigan's plane Sunshine, His plane, a nine-year-old Curtis Robin, was the most wretched-looking jalopy. As I looked at it, I really marveled that anyone should have been rash enough to even go in the air with it, much less try to fly the Atlantic. He built it, or rather rebuilt it, practically as a boy would build a scooter out of a soapbox and a pair of old roller skates. Corrigan defended Sunshine in later interviews, saying, She's good enough to fly around the world. All the motor needs is a bit of grease. The newspaper, The Daily News, reported that Corrigan had pulled one of the grandest wild stunts of all time, and they labeled him a swell egg and an Irish adventurer of the old school. New York City had an estimated one million people turn out for Corrigan's ticker tape parade, even more than had showed up for Lindbergh's celebration. He banked on his celebrity to pen an autobiography entitled, That's My Story, and sold items that went the wrong way, like backward-spinning watches. 
Hollywood came calling the next year, and Corgan played himself in a biographical film about his transatlantic flight called The Flying Irishman. He was paid $75,000 for his role in the film, which was the equivalent of 30 years' salary as an airplane mechanic. When the U.S. entered World War II, Corrigan served his country as a test pilot and flew for the Air Transport Command. After the war, he participated in parades with other war heroes. He married and raised three sons, one of whom died tragically in a plane crash. Though his wife would die in 1966, Corrigan lived until 1995 in the ripe old age of 88. He maintained until his death that he accidentally flew to Ireland rather than California. Towards the end of his life, in 1988, John Corgan was invited by organizers to a commemoration of the 50th anniversary of his now-famous flight. Corgan had become a semi-recluse after the death of his son, but he was tempted back into the public eye and even produced sunshine, which he had disassembled and stored at a barn all those years. With just a little bit of effort, they were able to get her engine running again. People there said his eyes lit up so much when the engine started that the organizers felt it was necessary to put a guard on either side of the plane to make sure that there were no more accidental flights. You know, whether it was truly accidental or simply defying authorities, John Corrigan became one of the first few aviators to make a solo nonstop flight across the Atlantic Ocean, and he did so just because he loved to fly. And shouldn't we all be that lucky to discover our life's dream and to go make it happen? Just not take no for an answer. You know, after listening to all three of these stories, with men who so easily could have gotten themselves killed, Wrong Way Corrigan actually kind of takes the cake oh, yeah. for me. Because despite a number of worrying signs as you tell this story, and his his cockpit fills up with yeah. fuel, and and he tries to fix it, he still goes through with mm -hmm. it. And the part where he just breaks a hole in the bottom of the of the cup yeah so the gas will drain out yeah and still flies across an ocean yeah. <laughs> well you know it might be that he just understood his plane well enough to know that he was going to be fine that he had plenty of fuel well uh, he did I, have I plenty mean, of I fuel honestly, i honestly don't know i mean he's one of those he could have taken off uh and uh you know at the time they're not really tracking and they might just never have heard from him again and never knew what happened and he yeah. could have been an utter mystery and so I don't know if he was, you know, he was brilliant and he understood that they were just being more careful than they needed to be and that he was going to be just fine and this would be fine. Uh, or if, uh, if he was just lucky. Uh, but you're right. I mean, he didn't see, he didn't seem to concern himself. He didn't care. You know, he shoved his head out the window so he wouldn't be able to come with fumes and, you know, drained out the gas out of the bottom and, you know, lands in, in, in Ireland and, and, you know, does this whole shtick about where am I? I thought I was supposed to be in California. Ugh. The, yeah. the the audacity of it, which is the same with these other two guys, oh, yeah. is that they still they do something that but he more than more than the other two, he clearly I mean he'd been told no, essentially. And he said, Okay, I'm going to carefully plan and do it anyway. And when the plan kind of starts falling apart, he still just he still just does it. And I guess that's the kind of guy you gotta be if you were gonna fly one of those planes in a in a really still pretty early era of flying planes and decide that you're just going to, you're going to cross that ocean, whether yeah. they tell you you can or not. Well, yeah, you think about it, actually Lindbergh was, was rich. He had, he yeah. had very wealthy benefactors and he had, you know, Bill, and of course the other guy that was flying there, you know, the reason that he was able to get out was Howard Hughes. So, yeah. I mean, he's, so he's, you know, he, he didn't have the means and he wasn't going to be put off by it because he didn't think he had to be rich in order to be able to do what he was doing. And he was just one of those mechanics that tinkered things together. Yeah. 
So I mean, it could be it could be that he was honestly just crazy and he could have died and he didn't. Uh, but I mean, it could be that he you know that he was perfectly safe and he knew you know what was going on the whole time, uh, and and it was them that was really you know that were really yeah. the incident. I still I just don't think there's a way that like if I got into my car and it started filling with gas, <laughs> it's, for me I'm just like that's it. Because well, when he took he knew he had the leak and he knew yeah. that if he waited to try to fix the leak that he would miss his opportunity. Uh, and so did he do the numbers in his head or did he just say, ah, oh, what the heck? You know? And he ended up, I mean, he ended up even with the leak having having plenty of fuel to get there. And he had like 30 gallons left over is what he said. And so, I mean, clearly he did know what he was doing and he didn't do it just completely, you know, on the seat of his pants. But it mm-hmm. still was uh, dangerous. I mean, he, he couldn't have yeah. known for sure that that wouldn't become a bigger problem. Yeah. Or at least I well, feel like he couldn't have known for it, sure. If you think about it, it might mean that, you know, what uh, Lindbergh did was not as big a deal as it sounded. Well, maybe they sounded like that was a huge miraculous thing, and maybe you know by that time it wasn't that hard. Maybe, I you know I I don't know. I mean, I, but of course the extraordinary thing about that was Gorgon is that he straight up lied, said that he was lost. No one ever believed that, but he never gave, he never broke from the story. He's telling one of the most never. obvious lies in history, <laughs> and in in a deny till you die sort of way, and no one believed him. I but but he never never broke never that's, never that's what's so impressive about it where even when they're like questioning him he's like yeah i sure am ashamed of that navigation yeah. and <laughs> no no one believed it and no. I mean, like, clearly he and, and i mean that's, but he, that's he never the, what are you gonna do i mean you, you yeah. can't how do you prove because it's only in his head so how do you prove that it's a lie so oh, i uh, must have just gotten turned around as i was coming out of new york and yeah uh, you know then i was above an ocean instead of the continental united states <laughs> 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 and, and it just kept going because you know where yeah, where... yeah so you know i figured at this point you might as well <laughs> uh he th- that really is what's so entertaining about it is that he was just like you know what yeah. i did this on accident and none of y'all are going to prove otherwise you're going to be able to prove you have no way to prove otherwise it's clear though he just had such a love such a passion yeah. uh and he was going to do it he was going to drive his soapbox derby car even if he wasn't the richest kid in the block he was gonna he was gonna fly a plane well, you can't uh, and, help but admire him a bit. Oh, to... absolutely! Yeah, I certainly admire his passion, and, yeah. and uh, I mean, he was—and he just—he had that infectious smile. He ended up becoming such a hero just because he was—he was just this guy that wouldn't wouldn't let him say no. So I think that you know people loved him because they knew that he was lying, and because they knew that he did it, even though the system told him not to, and that he was blocking the system. Uh, but uh, you also just have to—you have to love the passion of someone who just you know, refuses to take no for an answer. But you have to say, I mean, what you know, what would it have meant if Douglas Corrigan took off and was never seen again, and no one ever knew that he was attempting to try to fly to Ireland? Uh, uh, he, you know, story. how much how much effort would we have spent trying to figure out where the pilot had crashed somewhere between you know where he was supposed to be and uh, you know you know Boston? And, well, they would have been looking in or, the wrong the wrong place. Too, yeah, they never would have found him. Yeah, it would it would be a mystery, you know. Yeah. So I mean, how how do we know that uh, Amelia Earhart wasn't you know secretly trying to fly the other direction, and <laughs> that's why we've never found her plane. You know, that's, there's, there's a, a reason. Point. Yeah, there's a reason why you tell people where you're going in an airplane so that if you don't get there, they know where to look. You know, yeah, and, you, you and, land and, in the Pacific Ocean, they they might not find anything, anything. Yeah. So, but yeah, if you were if we're looking in the Pacific Ocean and actually she had you know gone some other direction and yeah. uh, crashed someplace, you know, in yeah, that, I mean, South they might, yeah, yeah, they might be waving their hands and nobody knows that they're there. So, not so yeah, when. Uh, when, when Douglas Corgan took off, uh, I mean, he had to understand the risk of not telling anybody what direction he was, and and he had he had to know that he was going to land in Ireland or he was not going to land at all, and and he and he made that choice. And what we really don't know is how sure he was that he was going to make it. 
But it, no. I mean, the way he the way he tells it, he did, it was when he first saw Lamb that he opened up his his bag of fig newtons because he was he was going to make it. We're going to make I can, it. I can, I, can, I can eat my stash. Yeah, he must have uh, had at least some doubts. Uh, he also, I mean, I don't think he would have done it if he didn't think he could do it. That's the truth. Yeah, of I, it. Mean, I don't think he took off to his island. I don't think no. that he. But uh, but I think he. You're right. I mean, I think he had to suspect there was a chance this wasn't going to work out, and and he was just willing to take that risk. So I mean, it's great when the guys what he's, he's eighty and they pull the plane down out of the out of the rafters and screw it back together, and they see him looking at it, and they realize that they have to you know station someone at both doors so he doesn't hop in and take off. You know, it's a... <laughs> there really is a dichotomy uh, in these episodes that we talked about. We've kind of mentioned it a little bit that these they end up being kind of like a lighter side story yeah. because these are, these are these were entertaining people who did uh, in incredible yeah, things all, that really, they all have their similarity they, yeah. they, they all end up doing certain things with airplanes you're not supposed to do but uh, and, they could have all ended in in tragedy and they, yeah. for a lot of people i mean people who would have who might have had stories like this uh did end in tragedy instead and it's it's a it's a it's one of those kind of uh interesting things about histories i think there are it a is. lot of places were, were these three lucky or did these three all three of them clearly had skill it's an interesting thing all three of them had extraordinary skill uh and uh and maybe all three of them uh, were denied because of circumstances the ability to go do all that they could with that skill, uh, and so they came and proved it. So I, were these three lucky, or was you know were these three you know destined to happen? Yeah, uh, but you're right. Question. They, I mean, they they wouldn't be nearly as funny if you know crashed the plane into a building. Yeah, and they easily could have been that. I mean, mm -hmm. You could easily imagine a story being uh, a guy got drunk in a bar and decided he was going to fly a plane to, to prove that he could get into the city in 15 minutes and he crashes into a building or yeah. hits, a, hits a car as he's trying to land yeah kills someone like kills that. himself yeah. Yeah. well it i mean all three of all three of them quite easily could have ended in, in tragedy oh, yeah. and, and they didn't uh and, and is it that they didn't because all three of them were actually just actually fantastic pilots in this situation yeah. uh because they seem to all three have been uh or 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 did they uh, not just because these are three lucky ones yeah uh, and uh, so, I mean, again, you know, don't do this at home. We certainly wouldn't encourage that. But I mean, they do end up being like history because uh, because they turn out fun. And yeah. I have to say, as a historian, because we tell both kinds of stories, we tell we tell tragedy and we tell comedy and we tell everything in between. Uh, it's a lot more fun, you know, when they get out and they're fine. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, but I mean, we tell. I mean, sometimes that's just not the story, and the story yeah. still should be told. Uh, and uh, both of those are compelling for different reasons. They're both history that deserves to be remembered. But uh, it's a lot easier to tell these kind of stories. You know, it's it's a lot easier for it to be lighter, like oh, everything's fine at the end. But part of you know part of history is also to say that that's not always the case. You know, sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes just horrible things happen, and that's that's history too. But all three of these also have that you know, buck the system, you know, yeah, <laughs> stick it to the man. Uh, that uh, that is part of. I mean, we all have we all have things that we'd like to do that for some reason we're prevented from doing, and it's kind of yeah. nice to see that someone at some point said, you know, I'm going to do it anyway, and they did, and was and was reasonably was successful and and yeah. worthy of uh, of got to tell a story like one of yeah. these guys. Yeah. And I think I, mean, I think one of the last things I wanted to talk about, I think we've kind of touched it a little bit, is you know what lesson do we take from from men like this when we tell their stories about history? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question, uh, and a lot of times I leave the lessons for other people to decide. I mean, it could just be that these are good stories that they're just fun to hear, because uh, um, and, and this one that I'm always given is say that we for some reason we write fiction when that when reality is sometimes much stranger, much you know more fun than fiction. Uh, but it could it could come to I mean part of the lesson here could be uh, that you can do things when someone tells you that you can't 
And it could be that maybe sometimes our rules are crushing dreams and that everybody's inspired when someone doesn't let it do that. I mean, there's, uh, you, could, uh, you could take a lot of lessons from these. I hope you don't take them to go risk your life in an airplane, but you shouldn't. But uh, you, can, you can take it as a lesson that there's some inspiration in people uh, who do it anyway. Because I mean, yep. there is. There's, there's something that it, it, uh, fills your heart with joy that someone was able to accomplish. Uh, and so I, you know, I wish them all, historically, I would say, I, you know, I wish them all the best, the luck. I, I, I'm glad that all three of them came out fine. I, I'm glad to tell their stories because, uh, because I, you know, I think it's inspiring. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History. And if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.